A young pastor was to preach his first ever graveside burial service. It was for a destitute man with no family, no friends. He was being buried in a pauper cemetery. Well, this young pastor, not really knowing where the cemetery was located, he made several wrong turns. He got lost. He arrived an hour late. Of course, the hearse was nowhere in sight, but a shovel was stuck in the ground next to an open hole, and the workmen were sitting under a shade tree nearby having lunch. Yet this young pastor, he wanted to be faithful to his duties. And so he walked over to the hole. He found the vault lid already in place. He was so embarrassed, so upset that he had been late. And so to make up for it, he preached with all his might. He preached passionately. He preached powerfully. He wanted to give this man a fitting send-off into the afterlife. When the pastor finished, he wiped the sweat off his brow. He sprinkled some dust on top of the vault, and then he returned to his car. But as he was getting into his car to drive back home, he overheard one of the workers tell his partner, wow, that was amazing. I've been installing septic tanks for 25 years, and I've never seen anything like that. And the moral of the story is, when you go to preach a funeral, make sure you show up at the right grave. This was similar advice to Paul's advice that he gives to the Corinthians here in the second half of chapter 10. In essence, he tells them, when you go to worship God, make sure you do so at the right altar. This is why Paul warns the Corinthians and us in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. It's possible to seek God and wind up at the wrong altar. Rather than worship and sacrifice to the true God, you end up at the altar of a false god, an idol. This is what Paul had mentioned earlier in chapter 10. In verse 7, he wrote of the Old Testament Hebrews who followed Moses out of Egypt. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. You remember Moses was on the mountain getting instructions from God. While the Hebrews grew impatient, they wanted a tangible, visible God. The true God requires that we walk by faith, not by sight. But doubting people would rather, have, would rather lock eyes than have faith. You see, faith is harder than seeing. And this is the appeal of idolatry. An idol provides us an immediate God that we can see or smell or taste or touch rather than a transcendent God who is above us and who rules over us. An idol, even a modern idol, and there are many, an idol in the form of a celebrity or a gadget or an experience, it caters to our lusts and it entraps us, whereas the real God has the power to elevate us over our lusts and set us free. Author John Phillips writes a great summation on idolatry. He says, It insults God and degrades man. Idolatry is hand in glove with deception, immorality, superstition, cruelty, and crime. It is false through and through and and is a sure and certain road to hell. It is by far the most persistent and pervasive error on this planet. Idolatry began early in the history of the race and has been entrenched deeply in man's religious thinking ever since. It has its tentacles in all lands and can be found everywhere in the modern world. 
Paul tells us, flee from it. It is deadly. And this word translated flee is a strong word. It literally means flee for your life. Idolatry is not something to toy with or to flirt with. And that's the motivation behind Paul's thoughts here in chapter 10. Some of the Corinthians were pursuing their liberty right back into idolatry. You know, it's true we've been set free, but not to dabble in what we've been freed from. In the original language, there is an article in verse 14. It literally reads, flee from the idolatry. And the idolatry is what Paul has been talking about since chapter 8. He's been addressing this subject of Christians and the pagan temple, eating meats sacrificed to idols. Now remember, thousands of animal sacrifices were offered in these pagan temples. Their priests could eat only so much of the chops. I mean, the remainder of the meat was sold to the Corinthian markets and the butcher shops. And this is where the city's Corinthians shopped. And so it brought up a question. Is it right for us to buy ground round knowing it's been offered to an idol? The local five guy serves a good burger. But what if that burger was an offering to the Greek gods Apollo or Aphrodite? Well, Paul addresses this subject in chapter 8. He says, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and there is no other god but one. In other words, don't worry about it. Meat is meat. An idol, just a block of wood or a slab of stone. A good piece of meat isn't tainted because it was offered once to a worthless idol. If you're not confusing a brother, then enjoy your steak. Just cook it first. Yet evidently, some of the Corinthian believers had carried their freedom too far. It's not what they ate that was the problem. It was where and when they ate. It was the atmosphere that surrounded their eating. Realize, in ancient Corinth, the pagan temple was the place to be. It was the cultural, social center of the city. And there were activities there almost every night. Not just religious services but concerts and plays and probably Zumba classes and ballet lessons. And before the concert, they prayed to the idol. The Zumba instructor would take a pinch of incense and put it on the altar before the class began in order to pray that everyone would be safe and not get injured. Weddings and family functions were also held at the temple and in honor of the pagan god. All of these events included sacrifices and prayers to the idol. And some of the Christians in Corinth felt a freedom to stay involved in these activities. Their associations with their friends drew them in. And they stayed involved even when they had to endure the rituals of the pagan prayers and sacrifices. But there comes a point when a believer's use of their freedom can turn into foolishness. When you find yourself worshiping at the wrong altar, you've gone too far. You've crossed the line. It's no longer an issue of your liberty, but of Christ's lordship. Is he Lord or is he not? And this is the point that Paul makes in chapter 10. The believers in Corinth need to flee the idolatry lest they slowly get sucked back into its snare. 
Now first, in addressing the Corinthians, Paul flatters them, verse 15. I speak as the wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. The Corinthians surely thought they were wise. They were proud of their knowledge, and here Paul hopes that they'll be open-minded. Then in verses 16 and 17, he begins his argument by illustrating how what happens at the altar of an idol is similar to what happens at the Lord's table during communion. What goes on at the pagan altar is spiritually similar to what happens at the Christian's communion table. He writes, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Now first, notice the language here upsets a few erroneous assumptions that are made by churches. Don't ever think that a priest or pastor has to officiate a communion service. I love the wording here. The cup of blessing which we bless. The bread which we break. Apparently, communion in the early church wasn't a leader-led celebration. Every member played a role. It truly was self-serve. They passed a loaf of matzah, and each person pulled off a pinch. A common cup was passed, and everyone took a sip. God didn't want an official orchestrating or arranging a communion, or it would limit its observance. Wherever believers gathered in Jesus' name, they could bless the cup and break the bread and fellowship at His table. Communion isn't really a fitting name for what we do. But when we come to the table to eat the bread and to drink the cup, this is what we do. We commune with the Lord Jesus. A mystical fellowship takes place at the Lord's table. In communion, believers experience God's presence. They bond together with one another. Spiritual work takes place at the Lord's table. To appreciate our eating the bread and drinking the cup at communion, we really need to know how the ancients understood the act of eating and drinking in general. You see, a common meal was actually a sacred experience. When two people took from the same loaf and drank from the same cup, they became one. A relationship was fused. A bond was forged between the meal's participants. This notion carried over into communion. For at His table... We renew our oneness, our connections, both vertically and horizontally, with the Spirit of Christ and with our brothers and sisters in Christ, are renewed at the Lord's table. You see, Roman Catholicism misinterprets communion as magical. That the bread and wine turn into something that they're not. That they literally become the flesh and blood of Jesus. It's make-believe to make people believe. Whereas Baptist-like groups on the other end of the pendulum, they take communion as simply a memorial. That the bread and wine are similar to a plaque, maybe a granite headstone commemorating the death of our Lord Jesus. It marks an important event in our distant past. But Paul is saying that communion is neither magical, nor is it just a memorial. Rather, it's mystical. Something spiritual takes place when Christians take communion. Obviously, the bread and the wine are still bread and wine, but eating and drinking are unifying acts. At the Lord's table, our connectedness to Christ and to each other gets emphasized. It heightens our faith, our spiritual awareness. 
Think of communion as a faith additive. It's a point of contact where we can release our faith and receive from the Lord. You recall that woman who had been hemorrhaging for years? She worked her way through the crowd until she was close enough to Jesus just to reach up and touch the hem of his garment, just to grab the tassel at the bottom of his robe. When she did, healing was imparted. And communion is our opportunity to touch the hem of his garment. At his table, we are in close proximity. It's a charged atmosphere. As with an electrified sky, there's a greater chance for a lightning strike. Communion presents us with a special occasion to get hit by spiritual realities. Once there was a man and his wife, they were taking communion in church. They had received the bread and the cup. They bowed their heads in prayer. And out of the corner of the mom's eye, she saw her five-year-old watching his dad intently. She thought, how sweet. We're being a good example. But her sense of satisfaction was short-lived. Later, little Seth asked her, what's in that stuff? You eat it and you all go right to sleep. It's actually to the contrary. Communion is a wake-up call. It's an alarm. It heightens our spiritual sensitivities. It enhances our awareness of God. And to a degree, the same was true of the Hebrews at their altar. Paul writes this. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? You see, a Hebrew approaching the altar in the temple with his sacrifice wasn't just engaging in ritual. In a symbolic act. No, it was interactive. The Hebrews were participating with God. The Old Testament sacrifices were spiritual transactions. You see, the worshiper came to the physical side of the altar. But the spirit behind the altar was also present. In the Old Testament and at the Lord's table, the spirit behind the altar is the Holy Spirit. But that wasn't the case in the pagan temples. There was a spirit behind the altar, but it wasn't the Holy Spirit. It was an evil spirit. Paul writes in verse 19, What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? And of course the answer is no. Chapter 8 has already explained that meat sacrifice to idols was just meat. The idol is nothing divine and neither is the offering. But there is a real spiritual entity behind the worship of that idol. So that when an idolater came to a pagan altar to offer a sacrifice, make no mistake about it, there was someone there to receive it. Not the idol, but demons. You remember before Satan's fall, he was Lucifer, the archangel. But he exalted himself in his heart as equal with God. He boasted, I will be like the Most High. The Almighty had to toss the devil and his cronies out of heaven. And since that time, the devil and his demons have tried to steal worship from God. This means that every idol is ultimately his initiative. Evil spirits are behind idolatry. And this is what Paul acknowledges in verse 20. Rather, that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You see, idols are idols and meat is meat, but idolatry 
is demonic. The Corinthians needed to know that you just can't walk into a pagan temple as if nothing spiritual is going on. Demons are dancing behind those sacrifices. Devils are pulling the strings. Not that they care if the idol gets worshipped. They could care less about the idol. But whenever an idol is worshipped, it means that God is not. And that is satisfaction enough for a demon. Here's a modern day example. A fortune cookie. A fortune cookie is nothing but a tasty mixture of flour and sugar. With a silly little message stuck inside. But if you take that message seriously as having some bearing on your future, or if you treat it superstitiously as if it has some influence over you, then that flowery confection becomes a type of spiritual sorcery. You're trying to supernaturally foresee the future apart from God and His Word, and the Bible calls that sin, even witchcraft. Realize the message inside doesn't corrupt the cookie. A piece of paper doesn't contaminate the flour and the sugar. The cookie's still a yummy treat that I personally will eat. But I never read the paper. I take it out, crumble it up, and throw it away. I don't want to be part of a pagan prediction. For I'm sure that demons like to use fortune cookies and Ouija boards and horoscopes to draw people into deeper deceptions. I'm trusting my life and future into God's hands. This is more relevant to us than you think. Recently, I had a young lady come up to me right after church, and she told me she had visited a psychic to have her palm read. She did it on a whim, just to be entertained, she said. She probably figured correctly, my future isn't written in the lines of my palm. She probably figured correctly. A psychic doesn't really possess mystical powers. So what's the harm in entertaining myself with a palm reading? It was like the Corinthians going with their friends to entertain themselves with the activities of the temple. The idol is nothing and the meat is just meat. But you see, this lady I spoke to and the Corinthians failed to see what was behind the pagan activity. Whenever there's a spiritual attempt to predict the future apart from God and His Word, the Bible calls it sorcery. Demons are behind the effort and can influence its participants. You see, the lady I spoke to was confused over what the psychic had told her. Duh. Surely it was a satanic deception. When you go where God says no, beware. And this was the danger that the Corinthians were risking. Eat meat sacrificed to idols at five guys or at home, no big deal. But if you eat it as part of a pagan ritual, you invite that demon behind it out to play. Verse 21 puts it this way. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? See, Paul is clear. It's one or the other. How can we be truly devoted to Jesus if we're flirting with demons? Now remember what was going on in the church at Corinth. The Corinthian Christians were free from superstition. They knew that the idols and meats were nothing. But they were taking their freedom too far. They were trying to stay connected with the pagan culture around them 
and they didn't realize that there were spiritual factors at play. Their involvement had spiritual implications that they weren't appreciating. When the company they worked for brought in the pagan priest to dedicate the new store opening, they attended. When the family gathered at the pagan temple for the nephew's coming-of-age party, they participated. They bowed in prayer to the idol like everyone else. Now, it's commendable to want to relate to our unbelieving neighbors. That's being like Jesus, in fact. You recall, our Lord was known as a friend of sinners. In fact, how are we going to win people to Jesus if we're afraid to be their friend? Yet it's one thing to be a friend and quite another to participate in an activity that betrays our Christian faith and values. See, people around us need to see our concern for them, but they need to be just as sure of our stand for Christ. Say I have a friend who's a homosexual. It's great that I'm in his life. I'm a true friend who wants to see him come to know Jesus. He knows he can trust me. Maybe I've proven it in our relationship. But what if he decides to marry another man and he invites me to the wedding? Well, suddenly it's no longer just about our friendship. Now it's about my views on the Christian understanding of marriage. My attendance at the wedding could be seen as an endorsement for same-sex marriage. This is why I need to draw a line. The Corinthians were putting their relationships with their pagan friends ahead of their stand for Christ. It was a slippery slope. I can hear them thinking. You know, it all begins, oh, we can still go to the temple. And then it grows. Oh, if we're at the temple, why, not we, why can't we go to the altar? And then finally, well, if an idol is nothing, then our sacrifice is really meaningless. So why not go ahead and make the sacrifice? But now there's no difference in the behavior of that Christian and that pagan. Both are sacrificing to the idol. You see, Paul reminds us that when we're flirtatious with the spirit of this world, we provoke the Lord to jealousy. Kathy started flirting with the mailman. I'd be pretty provoked. I'd be provoked to jealousy. And rightly so. I love my wife. I'm committed to my wife. And I expect her to be committed to me. Anything less is unacceptable. You can't be married to me and flirt with the mailman. And you can't be committed to Jesus and cozy up to contrary spirits. If Kathy wants to be married to me, I want her to be crystal clear with that mailman. Return to sender. (laughs) Yet compromise with the spirit of this world is becoming more and more prevalent in today's church. Churches have adopted the premise that to reach the world, they need to be like the world. It's true culturally that we need to be relatable. But spiritually and morally, we need to remain unbendable. We need to draw a line. When the pagans around us see no difference between their lifestyle and our lifestyle, we got a problem. Ultimately, it's not what we have in common that leads a person to salvation. It's our difference. We have what they lack. Truth and love and joy and purpose and ultimately Jesus. Paul helps these Corinthians in verse 23. He raises the bar on their behavior. 
When faced with a situation, they were asking the question, is this allowable? Am I free to engage in this activity? And since the temple was nothing and the meat was just meat, the answer was usually yes. But Paul suggests that there's a different question that we need to be asking. Not just is it allowable, but is it helpful? He writes in verse 23, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. And this is the Christian ethic. This is an amazing masterpiece in morality. No other religion has anything like this. It's just a, this is as free as free gets. Did you realize God gives us carte blanche? Do whatever you want, he says. All things are lawful for me. You can't get any freer than that. God frees us from laws and rules. Our conduct is no longer based on a set of commands. It's now focused on a goal. That goal is to love Christ and to love others. So now the determining factor for what you and I do and don't do is whatever helps us achieve that goal. Paul writes, all things are lawful, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. The word edify means to build up. If an activity doesn't build up my faith in Christ or build up my brother's faith, then it's nothing but a needless distraction that has no place in the life of a Christian. If an activity causes my own faith to fumble or my brother's faith to stumble, then it should be off limits to me. See, a Christian has a new priority. It's no longer how long can I get by or am I within the legal limits or how far can I go to the edge. It's not, is it lawful, but does it edify? Is this going to build me up, and is this going to build up others? You see, the Corinthians had been too cavalier about their involvement in the pagan temple and the meat sacrificed to idols. They had been flirting with compromise, and they had been sending mixed signals to the people around them. If a weaker brother saw me eating temple meat at Five Guys... He might take it a step further and eat meat from the pagan altar. What was once my liberty now becomes his sin. Tragically, I've sabotaged my brother's faith. And so Paul writes in verse 24, Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. See, here's what we all need to consider. None of us live out our faith in a vacuum. The church is a community And we all watch one another. We affect each other for better or for worse. We build up or we tear down. G.K. Chesterton once wrote, To have a right to do a thing is not at all the same as to be right in doing it. You can do the right thing in the wrong context and it become a sin. See, there is a greater question than is it right It's will this help or hinder the faith of others. Paul puts this all together in the next few verses. He begins in verse 25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. So if you're barbecuing for yourself and your family, and you know the meat is just meat, regardless of its history, then fire it up. Grill and chill. 
for the glory of God. Hey, you know, if you look deep enough, you can find evil association in just about everything. I mean, the cell phone company you use handles calls from drug dealers and mafia dons. Does that mean you shouldn't use a cell phone? Of course not. Cell phones also have good purposes. They save lives and they connect friends. They do a lot of good. So many things in life become good or evil based on their particular context. In the right setting, the meat sacrificed to a pagan god or a glass of wine or an article of clothing or a game of cards, it's no big deal. It's just meat and you're free to feed it to your family. He says, and if any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever's set before you, asking no question for conscience sake. And notice again the assumption. You're a good enough friend to an unbeliever, so much so that they invite you over for dinner. Nothing Paul has said here needs to be interpreted that we need to stop building bridges to unbelievers. To the contrary. How are they going to get saved unless we're willing to befriend people? He says, if you're over at your unbeliever friend's house, while you're there, if they serve you some barbecue and nothing is, is said about the origin of the meat, then eat. Chew and be happy. As Psalm 24 teaches us, the earth is the Lord's. Thus, meat is a gift from God meant for us to enjoy. But, Paul continues, if anyone says to you, oh, this was offered to idols, and obviously, if someone at your pagan neighbor's house mentions this technicality, then you know it's an issue for him, and he's probably testing you. In his mind, he's equating it with a compromise, and he wants to see how you're going to handle the situation. So Paul says, Do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you, and for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. And notice he quotes the same verse to not eat as he did when justifying his eating in verse 26. Is it a contradiction? No. He's simply saying that the same rationale applies to eating or not eating. Since the earth is the Lord's, all things, including meat, should be used for his glory. Thus, if it glorifies God to eat, then eat. If it glorifies him not to eat, then don't eat. All of life is about glorifying God. He goes on. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? See, Paul is concerned about the Corinthian Christians setting themselves up for unjust criticism. See, if my liberty is going to be interpreted by someone else as a moral lapse or as poor judgment on my part or worse, as a betrayal of Christ, why even go there? Is it really worth smudging the cause of Christ in your own witness? Is it worth it? I don't think so. See, as Christians, it does matter what people think of us. Don't be some rogue Christian and think you're justified in living as you please, regardless of the impression you leave others. You can't think that way, especially when you've been called to lead people to Christ. 
God has left us on this earth to be His ambassadors. That means that our reputation matters. If my goal is to love God and to build up others, then there will be occasions when I'll want to eat, just as there will be times when I'll push my plate aside. And if my heart is right, I'll be able and willing to do both. See, when it comes to our liberties, it's true. If you're not free to put it down, then you're not free to pick it up. This not only applies to meat sacrificed to idols, but to drinking alcohol and using tobacco and certain fashion styles and forms of recreation and entertainment, various traditions, really to a whole host of potentially offensive activities. See, here's the big question. Will it build up my faith and will it build up the faith of others? If there is a doubt, do without. Verse 31 is the governing principle for all a believer does or does not do. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The great Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards, he came up with two lifelong resolutions. There were only two precepts by which he lived his life. He wrote, resolve first. That all men should live for the glory of God. Resolve second, that whether others do or not, I will. Think of all the rules and laws and resolutions in life that mankind could eliminate. If everyone adopted this one, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And then Paul wraps up the chapter in verses 32 and 33. He says, give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Notice the three groups of human beings Paul mentions. He mentions Jews, Gentiles, and the church. Someone this past week asked me the question, where is America in God's plan? He was trying to equate God's handling of Old Testament Israel with his treatment of America today. But we're really talking apples and oranges. Realize for the first 2,000 years of history... God dealt with the Gentiles as a whole. For the next 2,000 years, He interacted with the Jews, His chosen people, and they will be forever. But now for the last 2,000 years, He has been calling out from the Gentiles a new nation, His church. Yes, God blesses and judges all nations. And He has made a special case of Israel. But today, God isn't looking for that kind of relationship with a nation a political entity. entity. Instead, he is building a spiritual kingdom from people all across the planet in all different lands. He's calling out a church. This is his brand new nation. Today, when God looks at humanity, he doesn't see Americans and Nigerians and Canadians and Brits. He sees Jews and Gentiles and the church. And as Christians, we need to be on guard about needlessly offending all three. If your Jewish friends invite you over for dinner, don't be insensitive to their law and take over a plate of pulled pork. What are you doing? If your Gentile friends want to take you out for a burger, don't act holier than thou and tell them, oh, I can't go, I'm fasting. You know, don't put religion ahead of relationships. Don't put law ahead of love. And if your church friends ask you to go for a coffee, don't order a beer and tempt the recovering alcoholic that's with the group. 
Paul says, give no offense either to Jew or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Every activity on your daily planner, every weekend diversion, every duty, every pleasure should be evaluated. Does it promote the gospel? Does it build up the faith of Christians and nudge non-Christians closer to Christ? If it does, go for it. If it doesn't, say no to it. This is how Paul lived his life. He had a plumb line. Not just what was allowable, but what was helpful. And this is how Paul was able to make the statement that he makes in verse 1 of chapter 11. He writes, Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Wow. That's a little different from what we so often hear from our leaders, isn't it? Even hear from some parents. They like to say, do as I say, not as I do. Paul's desire was just the opposite. Watch what I do, and it will confirm what I say. Hey, the church will have a far more powerful witness in the world when Christians are of the caliber where they can make this statement. What about you? Can you say, imitate me just as I imitate Christ? Well, you can begin on that statement if you make it your desire to glorify God in whatever you do, is it helpful? Does it edify? Make that your goal. 